Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the It Just Takes Some Time edition. As the Bengals hit their bye with a 5-4 record and find themselves one game behind the first-place Ravens in the AFC North with eight games to go. Coming up, it's an in-depth conversation with my friend and colleague Jeff Butch Hobson from Bengals.com. In addition to talking about this year's team, we'll discuss his relationship with Paul Brown and Mike Brown, and we'll also compare answers on a series of top three lists, including our most memorable Bengals games and the biggest what-ifs in franchise history. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play next-level fantasy football game. Download it now from the App Store and Google Play. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. It's the greatest thing since the Bengals video content team. If you're a big Bengals fan, you have undoubtedly enjoyed the tremendous work of the Bengals video content team. Every day there's something interesting on the team's website and social media channels, including the recent edition of Dan and Dave's Radio Call of the Game, where there's a camera in the booth that shows Dave Lapham and yours truly going bananas on the Bengals' big plays. So, kudos to Seth, Marissa, Luke, Gary, Adam, Jay, and everybody involved. Your work is as good as any video content team in the NFL. Now, let's get to my conversation with Bengals.com editor Jeff Butch Hobson, beginning with his path to Cincinnati. Anybody that's heard your Boston accent over the years knows that you are from New England. How did you wind up in Cincinnati covering the Bengals? I think Jerry Krasnick was probably a big factor. Jerry, I had worked with Jerry at uh, the Portland Press Herald, and uh, he had come out to the Cincinnati Post to uh, cover the Reds. And that was about a year before I came out. And it was such a great fit. Uh, the uh, city was, uh, you know, you could buy a house. Uh, two little kids wanted another one. Great place to great place to raise a family. As it turned out, that was perfect. Wanted a pro town, pro city, you know, first class all the way. Um, worked out thirty one years ago. Couldn't ask for it to worked out any better. So I arrived in Cincinnati in November of ninety five. So I never met Paul Brown, which is a big regret of mine. Describe meeting Paul, and how well did you get to know him? Horty, he would have liked it. He liked announcers. He, uh, 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 the guy I grew up with listening to in, uh, in his Red Sox fan, the 67 impossible dream, Ken Coleman, who actually broke in, uh, not broke in, but I think one of his, one of his, his first big breakthrough job was, uh, he was announcing for Paul Brown's Cleveland Browns. And, uh, so that's something we had in common right away that we talked about. We had kind of Ernie Davis and, in common too, Ernie, uh, Paul traded for Ernie Davis uh, when he was uh, in Cleveland. And Ernie, of course, was uh, the uh, fabled Heisman Trophy winner from our school, Syracuse. So that was that was a obviously obvious entree. Very easy guy to talk to. You would not know that he was the man that invented football. Uh, uh, I you know saw him on talk to him, tried to talk to him every day because he ran the Bengals. Seeing, you know, you had to talk to Mike or Paul every day. They ran the Bengals and they were very accessible. You know, this was, you know, Paul Brown was a guy that when he professionalized football, uh, pro football was right there with uh, sword swallowing and, um, you know, broom hockey. 
you know, it was not a popular sport. The country was ruled by boxing, college football, baseball. Paul would probably, you know, I'm sure Paul got on the horn in 1946, 1947 and said, hey, come on over and cover us, you know. And um, so he was very, you know, anytime you call him at home, he'd pick it up, he'd answer it, talk to you. I mean, it was, uh, you know, uh, I've told you the story many times when he was uh, said to Sunday, it was a very steamy practice on the sideline of Spinney Field. He was at every practice, came over to me, said, Sunday, do you mind if I tell you something, you know. The man came down from Mount Rushmore. Yes, he can say anything he wants to me. And he said, uh, I'm worried about your posture. And he, uh, you know, I kind of a uh, little hunched over there, you know, and he gave me uh, uh, a few tips. And if he came back now, he'd be a little disappointed. Uh, I turned into Quasimodo, but I told, I told Mike <laughs> Brown about it. I turned Mike Brown about it later. I talked to him about it. He goes, yeah, he goes, you know, he taught, he taught health at the, uh, at Maslin, you know, he was a, he was a teacher and he taught health and he went into the whole thing about scoliosis and uh, what, you know, curvature of the spine and uh, very nice. So I remember one time I uh, went down a 1991 draft uh, coach. Can I take you out to lunch? We'll talk about the draft. He goes, I don't go out to lunch. He said, but uh, bring your lunch and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have it. We'll have, we'll eat right here in my office. So hmm. down I, he pulled out a bag lunch with uh, you know, a sandwich and an apple and uh I had whatever I had, and we uh, we talked to draft. Uh, one thing I remember about that one is he was he was very intrigued by a tall quarterback, I believe, out of San Diego State, Dan McGuire, the younger brother of Mac McGuire. Mm-hmm. And as the draft unfolded that day, uh, uh, I, I, Dan McGuire went 16, and the Bengals were picking, I believe, 18 or 19. And uh, I'm telling you, uh, so I, the first thing I asked him after the draft was. Uh, when the when we when the writers met with him coach you had uh, you know you had mcguire was sitting there he goes yeah he goes that would have been very interesting he said if mcguire had been on the board so that was uh you know uh mike mike likes his uh he likes his quarterbacks uh tall and uh so did pb how did you his trust i think uh just by writing the uh right what he told you and, and, and being, uh, and, and having the facts. And, uh, I think, uh, talking to him about, you know, about his pet, you know, about what he accomplished, knowing that I wasn't, you know, knowing that I knew, you know, knowing, knowing that I knew what I was talking about, that I had known about football from back in the day and, and about now. And, uh, I think too, if you showed up every day, he liked that. You know, uh, he, he used to joke with the writers about if a guy wasn't there, and this was before me, but I talked to other guys about him. And uh, if a guy missed the day, he'd say, oh, yeah, that must be a union off day or something, you know, kidding the guy. He would because he would notice if you were there or not. So I think if you put in the I'll never forget, uh, there was a, uh, a crisis going on. Uh, my first year, the only year that he was alive that I covered the team, my first year uh, was the, the uh when Mike, uh, when Sam Weish shut the locker room to a uh, female reporter and, you know, went into this wild kind of crazy thing about how, you know, uh, it, it was not right for, you know, even though it was NFL policy and the policy of the country was, you know, equal rights, you open up the room for everybody. All of a sudden, Sam thought he was this arbiter, this moral <laughs> arbiter all of a sudden. So of course it was a national crisis that blew up and I'm on the West coast, my first, you know, my third, fourth game covering the team. And I'm, I can barely breathe. 
and I'm in a hotel in Seattle and I'm trying to get Paul Brown and I can't, you know, he's not in the office and, you know, uh, I got his home number. How often do you want to use that? Um, but you know, you got to talk to Paul about this. And he called me in the hotel. He called my room at four in the morning, uh, my time, it was seven in the morning, his time, but he knew that I was on, he knew the Cincinnati post. He knew it was an afternoon paper. He knew I desperately had to talk to him. Uh, phone rang at four in the morning. It was, he said, Hey, uh, this is, uh, this is Paul, you know, you know, not Mr. Brown or coach Brown, this is Paul, you know, that's how he wanted to be called. I said, coach, thank God. Thank God you called me. He says, well, I knew you needed to call me. I know it's early, but I figured you were up. So I'll, ne- I'll never, for, I'll never forget him for that. Cause he bailed out a, he bailed out, I, you know, he bailed out a confused scribe that morning. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget one time I had to barge into was, I had to barge into his suite in the middle of the game because, uh, something had come up on the wire about uh, there was a story. There's been a falling out with Paul Brown and Sam Weish in Cincinnati. So my desk wanted to get me in there. And um, he, uh, he was on his, he would go to the games, even though he needed oxygen, you know, that's how much he was committed to this team. And he was on his, and he was on the machine and he, uh, I barged in and he looked at me with his eyes wide open. And I thought, my God, I've killed the man that invented football. <laughs> But no, he was fine. He said, come on down, come on down. I told him what was going on. He goes, nah, that's bull. He gave me two great quotes. I'm sure I let a notebook with it. And it's another night he bailed me out. I mean, you know, the guy was, uh, the guy was terrific. Did you barge or did you politely knock? I think I, I, think I probably did a little bit of both. <laughs> I hope, I hope I did a little bit of both. I hope I did a little bit of both. You know, he obviously had such a curious mind. I bet that's why he liked you because you're a curious person about many subjects i bet you connected on the level of two curious people yeah i think uh, and it's the same thing with mike you know mike is this out of cut out of the same mold mike's very uh, very interested in what we do as as uh, writers and as broadcasters yes. that's how he grew up he grew up around sports he grew up listening to broadcasters he grew up reading the papers you know so he was uh, he, you know he was really uh you know, very into history, and uh, so am I, and uh, I imagine Paul was too. But you know, Mike and I, uh, oftentimes we would spend more time talking about history, and 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 before getting it, well, before or after we had get into the business of the day. And uh, but I think you're, I think you're exactly right, Mike. Uh, Horty, I think Mike and Paul, both both curious guys. You know, I mean, they they, you know, they read the papers, they listened to, uh, they listened to the. Uh, radio accounts and the play-by-play. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, was kind of like, you know, I told Mike when he uh, offered me the job, I said, geez, I said, I don't know if I want you to be my boss. I like you as a friend, <laughs> you know? He goes, well, we can still be friends. And, and he was exactly right about that too. Yeah, I wish people knew the Mike Brown that we know because he's a great storyteller. He's obviously extremely well-read on all subjects. And he's got this whole body laugh. You know, when Dave Lapham makes him laugh, yeah. it's a whole body shake that you can hear from like three rooms away. Yeah. And it's just, it's such an enjoyable part of the job getting yeah. to spend time with him when it's not, you know, talking about uh, hardcore business Bengals yeah. topics that he has to address. And he likes to laugh, I think. I think that's another thing that people, people whiff on is uh, he, he likes to laugh. He's a warm guy. And I know the way he's treated my family. Uh, he is, uh, uh, he has been the ultimate boss. Uh, I mean, this, he, he, here's a guy I remember, uh, you know, 
uh, I could call him on really to talk about anything. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's the kind of guy he is. And I know, and I know he would help me if I needed it. He has helped me if I've needed it. And, uh, you know, I, I'd get him on the horn. I know I'd get him at a very bad time, you know, whether I was with the Bengals when I was working for the Bengals or the Inquirer, it had to be, I'm sure. I'm sure I remember one time Jack Brennan said he was listening in on a phone call with, I had with Mike when I was at the Inquirer and I was growing Mike pretty good. And uh, Mike hung up the phone. He said to Jack, how'd you like to go through that four times a day? You know, and so, uh, you know, so, but he was always very pleasant, you know, and he would tell me, I remember one time he told me, take, take the rest of the night off, you know? And so he was uh, really, a, really a good, uh, really, really a great guy to work for and to work with when I, when I was at the Inquirer. You're visiting with Jeff Hobson. If I'm not mistaken, you were really the first hardcore newspaper guy to go to work for a team's website. Was that hard? Yeah, it was very hard. It was very hard. It was a, uh, I talked to a lot of people about that. And it was a, uh, a hard call because, you know, uh, I guess you kind of fancy yourself as uh, being independent, you know, or being an independent uh, guy and all that. And what, plus what would people say if, uh, you know, geez, if I go over to work there and they're going to say, well, he wasn't hard. He was, he was so soft on them when he worked at the Inquirer that they hired him. But if you look at the coverage in 1998, 1999, I think you would have to say, I can't believe Mike hired that guy. In fact, I think some people in his family may have even said that mm -hmm. when he offered me the job. But, um, you know, it was, it, 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 it was, but it was easy to do. You know why it was easy to do, uh, Horty? Because I was going to go to work for Mike. I knew he would be a, uh, all I would need is a handshake. Didn't have to sign a deal or anything. I knew his word. He was as good as his word. So is mine. And it was, and it was uh, because I know how he treated people. He treated people well. And that in the end, I think was what made that was what made the call. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was still sports, you know, and what was wrong with being on the other side? You know, I'd been 20 years, I'd been on the other side at, at newspapers. Why not get on the other side, see how the business is run. And, uh, and I, you know, it is an exciting thing. You're 24, you know, I could write at any time. I could post at any moment. I could, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a reporter's dream, you know? So, uh, but I, I, I never forget Mike saying, Hey, look, I don't know where this thing was going. And I told him when Mike offered me the job, I said, you know, Mike, uh, I don't know a damn thing about computers. I said, I can barely get onto my laptop. I said, my advice to you is to get a guy fresh out of college or a lady, whatever, somebody fresh out of college knows something about computers and he goes you know but i want somebody the fans trust which tells you something what he thinks about the fans mm -hmm. because i want somebody the fans trust the fans know and who they'll you know who they'll read and they'll trust and uh i thought that was very you know uh it was interesting because neither of us knew where this thing called the internet was going i mean but i do but i kind of knew if something blew up if it didn't blow up but mike would you know keep me around i i could do something for the man i felt like i could do and uh, that's, you know, I just, in the end, it was, uh, it came down to uh, having a good relationship with Mike. And yes, he was right. He was all over it. The internet was going to take off. Yeah. I didn't think it would. I had no, I, I had no <laughs> idea. I had no idea. But, you know, Mike, I think a lot like his dad, not afraid of anything new. You know, not afraid of anything new. And I, and if it hadn't been, if it had been anybody but Mike, I don't know if I would have taken the job. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way the newspaper industry has gone, unfortunately, was probably the best decision you ever made. There's no doubt about it. 
There's no, there's I, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that, that industry is struggling. Uh, and the last time I looked, the NFL is, uh, is, uh, not struggling. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is accurate. Let's talk about the hall of fame. Every NFL city has a representative on the committee. You are the Cincinnati rep. The first time you're in that room, was it pretty humbling to think, man, I'm just a kid who grew up loving sports in Boston, and now I'm going to have a say on who gets to go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame? No question. Uh, spine tingling, actually. Um, and the first time, this is uh, the first time I did it was in 1999 and 2000 when I was at the Inquirer. And then when I took the job, um, I had to give that up. Mm. But such as things have changed such that a lot of writers who've been around a long time are now working for teams. So they actually changed the bylaws. So I could, I could, uh, I could uh, get, be, be a voter. It's uh, rule. Yeah, I, guess, rule. <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, such as it is, but um, when I, in my first room in 99, Will McDonough was in there, which mm. was a big, that was uh that was that was my biggest thrill. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, uh, Lawrence Taylor, sure, I'll put him in. But the fact that I was sharing a room with Will McDonough was uh, awesome to me because McDonough was a guy. Uh, he was a giant to me, and uh, giant. And, and McDonough was a he was a great guy. I mean, he was a guy. Todd Archer said it best. He didn't big time you. You know, he he would call me. Hey, he would call me on the phone. When I was covering the Bengals, I'm like, oh my God, Will McDonough. But he was doing his due diligence. I said, my God, why is Will McDonough calling me? Because, you know, to us, uh, to, to me, to a guy growing up in Boston, Will McDonough, Peter Gammons, Lee Monthill, those guys are and still are the gold standard. And uh, that was my big thrill was uh, sharing a room with uh, Will McDonough. Yeah, you're right about him not big-timing people because his son, Sean, is obviously one of my closer friends from going to school with him. And I remember meeting Will. And at that point, he's at the height of his fame. He's on TV every week as an NFL insider. And he was the most normal. It's even hard to describe just how ordinary, almost, he came off. He did, uh, he was, fame. Yeah. No, exactly. I, I Borges, Ron Borges tells a great Willie story probably the ultimate is uh, at a, at a owner's meeting and uh, w Willie was out playing tennis and uh, he came back in and the other writers are grinding in the lobby and McDonough saw a, guy, a beat guy uh, from one of the teams and said, uh, Hey, you better make a call. Your coach is about to get canned. And I uh, kept walking, you know, kept walking through and probably saved that guy's job. Cause yeah. it was, you know, cause it was true apparently. So, you know, I mean, uh, as I'm sure it was. And uh, I remember one year, I think it was the year that Herschel Walker came out and signed with the USFL, any football story will had it. I mean, it was like, that was the 1982. I remember it just stuck in my mind. It was like a hall of fame year. Cause the USFL was coming out. I mean, he hit Patriots, NFL, USFL. He had it. He, he had the story. He was wired. And he, and yet, and yet he'd call a schlep like me. In Cincinnati, you know, I mean, so that tells you, tells you something about the guy. Yeah, I mean, Lap also describes meeting him as a high school football player as one of the greatest thrills of his life. He's, you know, Lap's getting ready to go off to college, and Will shows up at one of his high school football practices to do a story, and then Lap said it was, you know, it's like meeting a beetle. Yeah, yeah, that's back when sports writers are god. Now, now I think they're just clerks, I guess, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's not like it was. <laughs>
So in 2018, you wrote really the definitive history of the Bengals to date with the book, This Date in Bengals History. How did it come about? Well, thank you for that. I don't know. I, other guys like Chick Lugwig, they've had pretty good shots at it too. Uh, well, it was the 50th anniversary. And one of the ideas, I, well, an idea I had was do a this, let's do it this day, every day. And we were going to do it for maybe six months until the end of the season. And I was kind of getting into it. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, geez, you know, the more I would research it, you know, there was just some interesting, you know, every day seemed to have something, you know, it was really interesting. And that, you really got to credit the guys who covered the team back when it was the, guy, the guys who have covered it at the beginning and since. I mean, some great, you know, some great reporters have covered this team and they had great nuggets as the great Dan Horde would say, we're always looking for nuggets, right? Mm -hmm. Always looking for the homework. And these guys had them, you know? So it just kind of, it just kind of mushroomed Horty. And I got to say, you know, that Emily Parker, uh, the director of, uh, you know, communications, she was so helpful and so encouraging and really got it done. If it hadn't been for her, it couldn't get done. And, uh, but it was, you know, we thought it was a good thing for the club to get it, you know, to get something, you know, get something in a book. Because uh, I told her, I said, geez, I, I want to keep doing it. It was after the season. I said, let's do the whole year. Let's do, you know, the Bengals are worthy enough, 365 days a year. And then I said, you know, if I do it, I let's put it in a book after it. And I, I thought it'd be easier to do. I said, ah, I'll just put everything together. But it's not, you know, like everything else really had no no clue how how in depth that was going to be but emily uh you know bailed me out there too and uh you know just kind of more from being a doing a this day in Bengals history just putting them all together will you write another book i'd love to i'd write the but it might just be another compilation of uh i'd like to do the best of bengals.com because there has been believe it or not there has been some good that i i, I have had time to write some rather in-depth stuff mm -hmm. that i kind of you know some stuff on odell thurman uh you know, uh, Marvin Lewis, when he first got hired, you know, some of the longer, longer pieces that I think would be worthy of uh, maybe putting in a book, Bengals.com. Mm -hmm. But I think I'd also like to work on a, I, I mean, I would like to work on a book, but you know how it is, Horty, you know, just getting from one day to the next, you know, that's, that's the tough, I don't know how these guys do it, who cover a beat uh, and how they write books. I mean, I just don't know how that they, they are. They're, they're fabulous because I it's was just hard enough to do that book and I had and it, and it was written already. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to write a book from scratch. I'm convinced that some people have more hours in their day than we do. I don't know. It's so they must have, It's exactly right. I mean, it's you know you read these history books and it's you know I mean it's depressing. I mean, look at look at the work these guys did. You know, I mean uh, Robert Caro and his and his and his. Uh, biography on Lyndon Johnson. I mean, that's all he must've done, but he, obviously he did other things. I mean, he had a family he had, I mean, how did he do all that? I don't, I mean, the same thing with David, with David Halberstam, who's my ultimate. And uh, how did he do it before he passed? I mean, he passed, he was, uh, he was out in Stanford, uh, out uh, California working on a book on Y.A. Tittle <laughs> when he actually got, when he actually got killed in a car wreck. And, uh, you know, he was still, I mean, he was still, you know, I think he was like 66, 68, maybe 70. And he was still grinding it out these, I don't know, Horty. I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, uh, you know what the great Ray Oliver told me, the great strength coach, one of my best friends, he told me, Rock. he said, Butchie, never strut. You never strut because you're always trying to, you're trying to, 
you're trying to grind and go to the next thing. And there's always somebody better than you. So you can't strut. It's good advice. Never strut. Let's talk about this season to date. Uh, five and four, basically at the midway point, I guess 53% if you take nine out of 17 games. If somebody had said prior to the season, they're going to be five and four with road wins at Baltimore and Pittsburgh, you know, nobody should lie. Everybody would have signed up for that. Um, but the last two weeks have been a huge disappointment. That takes some of the shine off of the accomplish accomplishment, obviously. Yeah, it does. I mean, especially Green Bay. You know, you think about uh, it's funny when you look at that thing in May and then you live it. It's completely different, you know, and I got to keep I got to remember that when I write my schedule story when it's released. It, you know, it's just it's never the it's the world's completely different, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, this is an interesting team, you know, is this a, a, a pro and as last night proved, we're, you know, we're doing this on a Friday morning, the day after the uh, Ravens uh, got clocked by the Dolphins, you know, uh, where we are part of this venture, the Bengals are part of this venture. I don't know what to call it, but uh, anybody, you know, it's Pete Rosell's parody, but it's beyond that. You know what I mean? It's uh every week uh, changes. Now, granted, that doesn't take away what happened with the Jets and, uh, and the Browns are going to have to be better. But, you know, did this team arrive in Baltimore? Or was it? Is this part of the process? You have a breakthrough game, but then you get bounced in a game in games that you should win? Is that part of the process? And I remember we talked to each other, you look, you know, we looked at each other after I think the Jets game and said, when has this happened? When have they had a breakthrough win? followed by a game like that and it's hard to get your finger on but I could you know let's I mean if you go back to 2003 and 2004 they went eight and eight both years before they found their footing in 05 now is this 05 is it 04 I guess we're going to find out but uh you know it, it's it's 05 they were a very accomplished team that that, that could have won the Super Bowl in 04 they were just kind of trying to find their footing with, you know, they had some bad days and great days. Is this all four or all five? We'll find out. I think we'll find out. I think this team does have, this team's obviously future is in yeah. front of it, but how are we in the near future, five future? Where are we? They're not as good as we thought they were after Baltimore. They're not as bad as they looked last week. I think five and four is where this team is right now. They've got eight games left, five at home. If they could win half of those games, which seems pretty reasonable to me, you know, you got a winning season and who knows when, win one more than that. And you're probably a playoff team, which is not out of the question. I think you're right. I think they're five and four because the AFC is five and four. It seems like, <laughs> you know? So they're in step to me. The thing is defense, because I think offensively, I mean, I, I don't know. Burrow doesn't have to do anything for me. He's, he's real. He's the real deal. I'm not going to get excited about the 11 interceptions. Quarterbacks throw interceptions. I get it. It was a bad one. The 99 yard was a bad one. But this kid's, you you can win a Super Bowl with this guy. Mm -hmm. okay? And But to me, it's the defense. Because I think with a guy like Burrow and a defense that's 14, 15, 16, you get a shot. You get a shot. Uh, you know, but you can't give up five bills to Mike White. You know, because your quarterback goes out there and gets you 31 points on a road. Those are the games you have to win. Right. You know, and I think they win most of them because I think this defense is 
I think this defense is at the very least 14, 15, 16. It's certainly, right. it certainly costs that much, you know, and I think they're thinking the same thing. Hey, we got a quarterback that can take us there and we got a, you know, and a, at least a better than average defense that ought to be enough, you know? And I think, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, they, they've got to work it out, but I think that uh, I don't think the defense is bad is as bad as it's been the last two two weeks and it better not be, but because Correct. I think, you know, cause I think they, like I said, I think, uh, I think Burrow and company is good enough. Our eyes did not deceive us in the first seven weeks when the defense played lights out. Now, admittedly, they had some games there against teams that are not offensive juggernauts and that helps your stats, yeah. but it wasn't fluky. There was nothing fluky about the first seven games. And the Cleveland game is a little bit fluky because you've got a 99-yard pick six. You've got a drive that started at the eight after another interception. You've got a drive that started at the 30 because of a fumble. That's how games get ugly. Yeah. So the yeah. Jets game was a lousy performance on defense. There's no other word to describe it. The Cleveland game to me is a little bit fluky because of the turnovers and because you gave up two huge plays. That's the only thing that worried me about that uh, about the Cleveland game was the sixty yard. It was a seventy yard run. Mm -hmm. They haven't done that, and you can't do it. Right. They've been so good. They've been so good preventing that, and that just kind of came out of nowhere. But I guess you know. I guess you're allowed one, right? You're allowed one. I mean, uh, um, I think that uh, you know, and and the big play that the, the you know the sixty yard pass. You can't. Those are the two plays that bothered bothered me. Everything else, I think, you know. Uh, I think you do put that. I think you do put the Jets game and Zach put the Jets game on the offense uh, because he felt like, you know, the defense had played, like you said, the defense played so well for seven games. Hey, bail them out. And to me, you can't throw a pick with 436 left and a five-point lead. Whether you want to put that on the call, the quarterback, I don't know. But, you know, you have to come out of that drive. You have to come out of that. You've got to drain at least a minute in minute 30 out of that. I don't blame the defense for that. All right. I was on a podcast last week with Bengals super fan and podcaster Zim Huday. And during the course of our conversation, he put me on the spot and asked me to name my top five Bengals of all time. So off the top of my head, I said, Dave Lapham, easy, <laughs> easy. Number no one pick. Yep. yep. Anthony Munoz, Chad Johnson, AJ Green and Boomer Esiason. And a week later, giving it some thought, I'm not sure I would change. So I feel pretty good that off the top of my head, that's what I came up with as my top five. But it gave me the inspiration to do some lists with you. So these aren't going to be off the top of our heads. I gave you the topics in advance. And we're not going to do the top five. We're going to do the top three in a few different categories. And we will each give our answers. So our first category is top three most memorable games so these aren't necessarily favorite games biggest wins these are most memorable games you go first blake amania jeff blake's first nfl start when he almost beat the super bowl champion cowboys uh that's one Corey dillon going for 278 uh against the broncos i mean that, that was unbelievable with two pass yeah. completions all day yeah, I'm, I'm two of fourteen. Ridiculous. I mean, uh, as Dylan, as Dylan, as I, as Dylan agrees, somebody will break the record, and they'll keep breaking the record, but nobody will do what he did that day on 22 carries with basically, you know, automatic quarterback that we played with on the streets. 
Yeah. Then, no passes completed after the first quarter. Yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah. No, right. Um, and then, uh, so that, okay, those two. And then I tell you what, uh, the Zim game in Baltimore, October 11th, 09, when uh, Vicky uh, Zimmer, uh, Zim's wife had passed tragically after practice Thursday. And he still coached the game and he went down there with the team and he was went down there and he, and he coached the game and they, and they shackled the Ravens. I mean, they beat them. I mean, they, uh, uh, they beat them at the end. It took them, you know, they held them to, they held them to 14 points and they had to win it on a touchdown drive at the end. Andre Carson Palmer from Andre uh, to Andre Caldwell with uh, what 20 seconds left. That was uh, unbelievable. So those are my three, the, the Blake game, the Dylan game and the Zim game. All right, my three, and I, like I said, these are memorable. These are not necessarily fond memories, but I've got to go with the playoff loss to the Steelers in January of 2016 for this reason. Montez Perfect made the interception, and we thought the game was over. That's the happiest I have ever been in my life. Yeah. More than my wedding day, yeah. more than the birth of Sam Horde. Yeah. For about a 90-second span, yeah. That is literally the happiest I have ever been in my life. And then Jeremy Hill fumbled and so much for that. Right. Uh, that's a good, you know, I think that moment gave rise to Elizabeth Blackburn, who just came uh, the, to the, uh, to the uh, canopy crazies. I think, uh, you know, Elizabeth has come in in the last year, uh, Mike's uh, granddaughter, Troy and, uh, Troy and Katie's daughter, and uh, had some very, really good fan engagement ideas. But I think they were born after talking to her, I think they're born out of those 90 seconds because she's, you know, she's Bengals through and through. And my kids were there and uh, they were weeping. They were dancing and weeping in the aisles. You know, I had a great first three graphs score. that never saw the light of day. <laughs> I did go back the next day. I got out my, uh, my runner's watch and I timed in real time, the amount of time that passed between the interception and the Jeremy Hill fumble. And off the top of my head, I think it was literally 92 seconds. So I just wanted to know how long the happiest moment of my life lasted. And it was 92 seconds. Doesn't it seem like it would have been longer than that though? Interception, change of sides, the whole thing. Doesn't it feel like that would have been a few minutes? I guess they didn't seconds. even go to, I mean, I guess they didn't even go to commercial, I guess. No commercial. Yeah, yeah. 92 seconds. All right, uh, number two on my list, though, it's it's also Cincinnati-Pittsburgh, and that would be the game two days before Christmas in 2012 when the Bengals made the playoffs and knocked the Steelers out on the same day at Heinz Field. Josh Brown with a kick with eight seconds to go because, to me, that game epitomizes what I love about pro football. It was a war, just, yeah. you know, haymakers being thrown all day, and his hits and plays on both sides. Reggie Nelson comes up with a pick and he completes the pass to AJ. Josh Brown kicks the field goal and, uh, you know, it's Christmas two days early. And Lap going through that. I always remember Lap going through the locker room. Gino Atkins. Gino Atkins. Because that was, Gino was huge that day. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, and that, that was a calling card game. How we, you know, how we talked about this year, Baltimore being the, the this team's calling card. That was the calling card, I think, for the Green Dalton Bengals. 2011 wasn't a fluke. Hey, they were going yeah. back to the play. They were going back to the play. That game put them back in the playoffs for the second straight year. Kind of like the, um, kind of like the uh, uh, 2004 Ravens game with Carson in December. The uh, 
when they the 24.4th quarter. That was the Marvin Lewis calling card, I think. So yeah, 2012. That's 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 a great one. And the third memorable game on my list, excuse me, August of 2011, Detroit 34, Cincinnati 3. That was my first preseason game with Lap. And I just remember being on the bus after the game, getting ready to drive to the uh, airport in Detroit to fly home. I'm like so happy. This was fun. I know me and Lap are going to be a good tandem together. And I'm looking around at everybody else on the bus and everybody else has long faces. They're like, holy cow, we're going to be terrible this year. Dalton's not ready. We only won four games of the year before. And I just like want to hug people because I'm so happy <laughs> that, that I'm going to be doing an NFL team's games on the radio. And even though they got smoked in Detroit, uh, that was that was a memorable night for me. Absolutely. I mean, you grew up in, uh, you know, you grew up, grew up right outside Buffalo. And, you, you know, you grew up listening to those guys and you know you yeah. talking into a tape recorder you know and talking into a tape recorder when you were uh, what eight nine ten years old and yes to be able to to be able to do that that had to be uh you know who cared if uh sue sue put andy on his head and i'd like his third snap of his career yeah. <laughs> correct that was i think that was his first pass in a preseason game and donica sue tried to kill him yeah all right our, our second top three list Top three Bengals interview subjects. Who do you have? Boomer, 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 I would think. No, uh, you know, Boomer's, Boomer's at the top of that list. Uh, you're talking about players or just subjects, right? Just I mean people. players. I mean players. the guys that you either enjoyed talking to the most or who gave you the best stuff. Best, yeah. best Bengals to interview. Boomer, Willie Anderson, Andrew Whitworth. <laughs> You know, those are the uh, mm -hmm. uh, none better. I don't know. I, I can't imagine there'd be anybody. There'd be three guys better from any other franchise because those guys are the, those guys are the gold standard. It was interesting that Willie and Witt played the same position. You know, uh, on the offensive line. Uh, you know, when I grew I grew up in an era where the offensive lineman was supposed to be dumb. You know, those are the two smartest guys I've ever met. You know, and uh, and, and of course, Boomer's Boomer. I mean, you know. Uh, you know, Boomer, uh, Boomer's another guy that bailed me out. You know, uh, he's a guy, and I was just talking with this to uh, Steve Serby when we were down in New York. Uh, Steve Serby, the great New York Post uh, columnist, and, uh, you know, whenever, you know, he, he could always get the Boomer. He could always seem to get the Boomer when he needed him. You know, Boomer would even call him, you know, because uh, he just knew that Serby needed him or that we needed him. You know, Boomer, he's got a great feel for that. I mean, he's in the media anyway, and he – he was an intern. I, I, I think when he was in college, he interned in the business. You know, he wanted to be a media guy if it didn't work out in sports. I, I want to say that he interned at the same station, I think, that uh, Oprah Winfrey did at the same time. I want to say in Baltimore, I believe, when he was at Maryland. I've got Whitworth on my list. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Thoughtful, smart, totally got it. Was always there when you needed him. Hard to argue with Andrew Whitworth. Mike Daniels makes my list. Now, unfortunately, because he's been on the practice squad this year, we haven't really been talking to him. I did the week before uh, Bengals played Green Bay. That was a uh, good call, by the way. That was, a, that was an excellent call. I should have done that. I he was good. Yeah. He was good. I think Mike Daniels is going to be a broadcasting star. You know, he was a good enough player that networks will want him. You know, went to a Pro Bowl. He was on the top 100 list a few times. 
and he's just he's got great feel. He's always enthusiastic. He's got a good sense of humor. I think Mike Daniels has a chance to being a, of, of being a really prominent broadcaster. And then my third always surprises people, Adam Jones, because he is the one Bengal who is truly unfiltered, incapable of just, you know, spewing cliches and doing kind of the, the Bull Durham interview. He just shot you straight. Wasn't always the best thing for him to do, uh, but it was always fun to be on the other end because you never quite knew what you were going to get. Yeah, there was some other, this, uh, he's, he's probably at the top of a, of a bunch of guys that didn't use a filter. And, uh, you know, you try to protect those guys too. If they go, if they overdo it, you do try, you, you can't protect them nowadays. You know, back in the day you could, if you thought he kind of went, if you thought, you know, I think we've both been in that situation. Where, sure. Uh, boy, I'd love to use this, but it's just going to kill the guy. Right. But, uh, you know, there've been, uh, there, you know, I'll tell you another guy, uh, who could, uh, shoot you straight too is TJ Hushmanzada. He would, uh, he would say stuff that would kind of make you, Ooh, I don't know. You, you sure you want Marvin to read that, <laughs> you know, but, uh, TJ was a good one. You know, TJ would, uh, un, he was, he was a classic unfiltered as well. No question. All right. How about top three underappreciated Bengals players? You know, for some reason, when I saw that, the kickers came to mind. Hmm. And, and two guys came to mind, Jim Breach and Doug Pelfrey. Jim Breach was the Super Bowl kicker, won a lot of big games. I mean, I got the record, right? Nine for nine in overtime. Nobody Correct. About that. That's just huge. I mean, every other week, there's a guy doinking the goalpost that, uh, you know, I mean, and this guy, this guy did it. This guy never missed an overtime. They're pretty good. And Pelfrey played on a very tough stretch in Bengals history in the 90s. From 94 to, like, 96, he won a third of their games at the gun, you know, which is, to me, that's kind mm. of – you never really think – I went back when I when, – when, when McPherson uh, and uh, Mason Crosby had their thing in the Green Bay game, I went back and talked to Pelfrey, who was – who, by the way, I think he's like the rest of us. He thinks McPherson is going to be the greatest kicker in Bengals history. Yeah, but you know, you just kind of that made me think of how how good Doug had been, and I, so those two guys I think lead my uh, least appreciated, and then I think you know probably you'd have to go with uh, either James Brooks or Rodney Holman there at the, uh, hmm. I mean Holman was the best all around tight end that's ever been here, and uh, with you know with Trump Trumpy probably being a close second, and um, you know Brooks was Brooks was Brooks was unbelievable for a four year stretch. I'm going to start with Andy for obvious reasons. You know, I, I'm not suggesting he was the greatest quarterback in Bengals history. Um, he had his deficiencies, but he was never truly appreciated until he was on his way out the door. Yep. While he was leading the Bengals to five straight playoff appearances, it seemed like everybody was always looking to try to get somebody better. Right. And then when it was clear that his tenure in Cincinnati was going to end, he was loved. What a shame. What a shame that he wasn't embraced uh, when he was at his peak. No Bengal quarterback has done what he's done. Five in a row. Five playoffs in a row. I mean, that's not Kenny, not Boomer, not Kasson. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, and uh, yeah, he did. He took a lot of grief. My second one actually would be somebody that you mentioned earlier, Corey Dillon. I mean, as great as Corey was, he has a Hall of Fame resume 
and he won't get in. I mean, you know this better than I do from being on, on the committee because of his personality, which is a shame. He ran for more yards than OJ. He had two of the best games in history. As soon as he was on a good team, he was the best player on a Super Bowl team. He checks everything on the list except for being prickly with the media. Yeah, I, I think, uh, plus he was on bad. I think he's one of these many guys that pay the price for being on a bad team. You know, and uh, they just don't get those, though, the players on. And I've said this ad nauseum. The Hall of Fame has too many uh, good players on great teams and not enough great players who deserve to be in from bad or mediocre teams. Dylan and Willie Anderson are the centerpieces for that. I'm going to cheat for my third person. I'm going to say Marvin because by the time Marvin was let go or mutual decision, however you want to phrase it, he was let go. Um, All people could talk about was the 0-7 playoff record. And no one remembered what it was like before he took the job in 2003. I mean, to consistently have the Bengals contend in the toughest division in the NFL was a heck of an accomplishment. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, this guy, uh, he brought he brought the Bengals into the NFL and of the 21st century with his sheer will of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for that, he should be on, I mean, if he's not on Bengals Mount Rushmore, then he would be on the, uh, he's on the seven blocks of granite. I mean, he's that, you know, he's a top 10 figure in franchise history. You know, um, I think also too, people don't, people forget um, he won two division titles with two different quarterbacks. And I don't know how many, you know, I mean, uh, that's, that, that, that's, that's a pretty good feat. Uh, and I, you know, it shows you his staying power. I think his skill as a communicator and uh, getting them, you know, and getting and, and, and finding, finding players and motivating them, I think is a, and, and he was a great, uh, he was a, he was a great, he was a great recruiter. He was a, you know, he was the franchise's best recruiter. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good pick. He did cheat a little bit. He went to the totally coach. cheated. I cheated. It's good though. I mean, uh, I, uh, Hey, look, the Astros, they got into the world series. <laughs> I'm banging on a trash can, (laughs) whatever it takes. All right, our final top three. Top three what-ifs in franchise history. We could do 30 apiece in this one, uh, but we're we're each going to pick out three. Yep. I go? Feel free. Okay. Lewis Phillips catches the interception. Joe Montana's interception. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Hill doesn't fumble the ball. I mean, this is easy stuff, right? Uh, and um, geez, I don't know. I I think they're. I, I think everything else pales in comparison to those two because those are. I don't want to say life changing, but yeah, I'll say life changing. Okay, I'll, okay. And uh, if Shane Graham makes uh, the overtime, uh, makes the kick at the gun against Pittsburgh in 06, that's a real life changer. They go to the playoffs two years in a row. 07 and 08 probably, you know, maybe don't happen. I'd like to see, you know, how that 05 team, it didn't really, it didn't really carry over like they thought because they didn't make it in 06, 07, they underachieved. But what if they go to the playoffs two years in a row? So those are my top three. All right. I'm going to the way back machine. Greg Cook's injury. Yeah. Biggest what if in franchise history. So Bill Walsh famously said he was the most talented quarterback he ever coached. Joe Montana turned out to be pretty good. 
I wonder would a healthy Greg Cook and Paul Brown, if that would have been Belichick and Brady. I mean, they wouldn't have won six Super Bowls, but would they have won two? Would Paul have kept coaching past 75? He wasn't that old. I mean, if he had the best quarterback in the NFL, would they have been the Steelers of the 1970s? Mike Brown? Oh, Mike Brown thinks so. Mike Mike is pretty sure that uh, Cook was the best he ever saw. For a second one, I'm also going to 2015, but before the Jeremy Hill fumble, I'm going to say the Andy Dalton broken thumb because they were the best team in the NFL to that point, or at least one of them. They were, would have been the number one playoff seed in the AFC at the time at 10-2. and two. He breaks his thumb. A.J. McCarron did a heck of a job down the stretch, but they averaged seven fewer points with him at quarterback than they did before Andy got hurt. Andy was in the discussion for MVP. I think they win a home playoff game against the Steelers with Andy Dalton playing instead of A.J. because even though A.J. led them to take the lead, with less than two minutes to go, we really struggled for the first three quarters of that game. So the Andy Andy broken thumb is on my list. That's a good one. I would I think I would like to have played the Jets. I think I liked would have liked to have had McCarron against the Jets that game. I think didn't the Jets have if if the Jets won, I think the Steelers were up. I think so the final game between Steelers and Jets. Uh, I don't I, I don't know who it was between the. I think the Jets had the win. Fitzy had to win and they didn't. That's right. I think. And yeah, so, I'm forgetting who they who they lost to, but that's that gave the Steelers the final playoff spot right. because the Jets lost the regular season finale. It would have been it would have been McCarron versus Fitzy and a great Dalton backup versus Carson backup. Right. Yeah. And for, for my third and final one, we're we're thinking same, very similarly. So you take the Billups interception drop. And then Joe Montana threw a touchdown pass on the next play, not on the final drive, which some people remember inaccurately, but earlier in the fourth quarter of that game. But I'll take Crumry breaking his leg. Yeah, that's you know, short, shortly into that Super Bowl, you got the best defensive interior lineman in franchise history right up there with Geno. I mean, if he plays that whole game, do the 49ers have any chance of marching down the field on the final drive to lead to Montana to Taylor? Probably not. Out of Crumrise getting in Joe Montana's face every other pass drop. Some would say, what if a bullet blitzed, right? Some, what if a low bullet blitzed in the last drive? Or on the 40th anniversary, why don't we ask, what if the Bengals had scored on uh, the goal line, uh, on the goal line stand, the Niners staged in uh, Pontiac? Do they, uh, do they pull off one of the greatest comeback? Do they pull off the Patriots Falcons comeback uh, 40 years earlier? If they, uh, if they punch it in there. Neither one of us chose uh, not taking the Saints offer for the entire draft to take, take it. That one's too painful of a what if to take a Kelly Smith instead. But you know what? You would, and, and, and probably it would have been better off taking a deal because you wouldn't have taken a Kelly. But, you know, the Saints, you know, you got seven guys and I think, uh, what, Ricky Williams, right? That's what you would have got him that you would have got, I mean, you would have got their whole draft. Right. But, you know, it would have been like seven just guys, maybe. Who knows? You never know. Uh, the Redskins did get Champ Bailey from the, the Redskins made the trade and they wound up with Champ Bailey as the best player of, of the ones they selected. So he was obviously great. But you never know. The Bengals might not have taken Champ Bailey. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and uh, great. Okay, you gave us your draft, but how many guys are 
how many drafted guys are really are going to come out worth that third. Pick. Right. Right. All right. We're going to wrap this up with something that I typically do when I'm doing my fun facts interviews during the course of the week, a few wild card categories for Jeff Hobson. Who is your all-time favorite athlete in any sport and why? Tony Canigliaro. Uh, he was a Boston kid, uh, hit, a, hit a home run in his first at bat at uh, Fenway Park. Uh, he was uh, 19 years old, I believe, the youngest American League home run champion. Um, everything I was not, uh, uh, matinee idol, he could sing, uh, but he did what every Boston kid wanted to do. I mean, this guy, he was living a dream. And then he had everything, and then suddenly he had nothing. He got hit in the eye. He, he almost got killed. He missed a year. And he came back opening day, 1969, hit a, uh, um, I think he uh, scored the tying run in the ninth in Baltimore and hit a two-run homer, I think, in the 10th to win it. Uh, in, in his first game back, I mean, he came back. I mean, he, the guy uh, came back in 69, played two more years. Um, the eye failed him again. And then he came back like four years later. He actually won a roster spot with the 75 Red Sox. A lot of people forget that. And he, he finally retired after he pulled a hamstring in May. But to me, he, 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 he didn't quit. You know, I mean, he, he just he kept coming back. I mean, the guy had everything and then it was gone. And he was just I mean, to be, you know, to get hit in the face like that and then to come back and he hit 20 homers in his first year back and then he hit 36 homers year after that after nearly getting killed. I don't know. To me, he, you know, uh, one of my great thrills was somehow I ended up uh, I went to the first two games of the 75 playoffs and somehow he was uh, popped out of a crowd and uh I said, uh, Tony, I just saw him there. And I, he goes, what? And I just said, I just want to shake him hand. And that's the only time I ever got the only time I ever got to see him. That's still your Twitter image, the it's sports illustrated a, cover of his black eye. Yeah. That's still, uh, to me, it, you know, the guy came back, man. He didn't, he didn't quit. Awesome. What's your all time favorite book? All four. Uh, no question. Uh, that uh, came out in 1970. I was 11 years old. Probably it's pretty, race, pretty racy for 11. Well, it, my grandparents gave it to me too. So, they you know, which is amazing. First. Which is amazing. Still inscribed. I got it still inscribed. And uh, of course, they obviously didn't realize, you know, they had seen May 22nd, <laughs> what, uh, what he said to Sal Magley. You know, they wouldn't have bought, <laughs> they wouldn't have bought the book, you know. Uh, probably learned more about the birds and the bees reading that book. You know, uh, then the conversation with Roy Hobson, you know, <laughs> so uh, so that, you know, and it was just it really, you know, it could have turned you off, I guess, if you were. But, but it was just so it was funny. It was these guys were human beings. You know, I mean, I still remember the stories in there. It was so and actually it was it was really I mean, it was Boughton wrote the book, Jim Boughton, obviously. But it was Jim Boughton talking into a tape machine. Uh, with a great insight, but it was Leonard Schechter, who the editor, who wrote it and put it together, and uh, mm. genius, you know. But yeah, no, no I mean, no, I still remember the anecdotes are uh, still sit with me today. I remember uh, talking to uh, John Kennedy was a character. Not, a, I mean, he was in that book. He was a suit. He was a played for the Pilots. Later became super sub with the Red Sox in the early seventies. Became a scout for the Red Sox. And I was working in Maine and I was working in Maine. I was a sports columnist. He came to scout a game. So we got to talking and chatting with him. And I said, uh, 
did your greenie kick in yet? You know, thought maybe <laughs> you might, you know, uh, John, John Kennedy did not talk to me for the rest of the night. <laughs> later left in that inning. At least from that spot. Probably uh, not a fond memory for him, having that exposed that. in the book. But if you go back and you look at ball four, I think it was John Kennedy said, uh, hey, my greenie hadn't kicked in yet or something. I can still remember this stuff, uh, you know. Did that, book, did that book influence your decision to get into this business? Uh, probably one of them. But I think the biggest influence was just waking up every day and reading the, reading the Boston papers. My, my, you know, my, I, you know, we had to sneak in the Boston Herald. At the time when I was coming of age, uh, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, the Herald had the best sports section, hmm. and the Boston Globe, the Boston Globe had yet to over uh, had yet to overtake them with the young guns of McDonough and Gammons and Montville. And so they had they still had Tim Horgan and guys like that, or Bill Liston, you know, the Herald did. But we couldn't. Uh, my father and I had to sneak in the Herald because it was a uh, Republican paper that had backed Nixon. And my mother didn't want it in the house, and uh, so we had to we had to sneak in the Herald Sports section. The Globe was fine. We had the Globe. We had both the uh, Morning Globe and the Evening Globe. Hmm. So uh, I was able to uh, that that I, I think that well, four didn't hurt, but uh, it was the newspapers, the Boston newspapers, that got me in. All right, last category for Butch Hobson. If you could meet anybody in history, athlete, actor, statesman, whoever it might be, who would that person be? Well, I tell you, I'm not going to be able to talk by Jackson Common, who went with Leonardo da Vinci. That, that was that was very impressive there. I thought so I, too. I tell you what, uh, I had I had to struggle there, you know, forty, but uh, I came down uh, with John Lewis. Hmm. Uh, closely eked out John Kennedy. My ultimate would be if I could have a coffee with John Lewis and uh, Jack Kennedy would be my ultimate. But if I had, if it's got to be one, it's got to be John Lewis, uh, the uh, late congressman from Georgia who was a, such a, who was a freedom rider. Uh, and it was such a huge factor in the civil rights uh, movement. Uh, I mean, this guy literally gave his, uh, gave his blood on the bridge uh, at Edmund Pettus. And I guess that's something that I would, that's another story I would put in my next book, I would hope would be uh, Michael Johnson going back to Selma, Alabama, mm -hmm. across the bridge with Barack Obama. That's pretty good. But Lewis was in on that too. And I, on that, you know, on that, uh, I think it was the, uh, it would have been the 50th, I guess, in 2015 of the March. But uh, yeah, John Lewis, I mean, he was a guy, he uh, grew up uh, poor in Alabama and he would, he wanted to be a preacher and he would preach to the chickens in the, in the farmhouse, you know, and, uh, and he rose to become, you know, he was one of the speakers in the match on Washington. And it was such a volatile speech that Martin Luther King Jr. had to pull him aside uh, at, the, at the Lincoln Memorial and had to go, had to edit his speech there and take out what he thought was a little bit inflammatory. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to talk to, to John Lewis about that. Uh, what exactly did Dr. King and he talk about in the moments before he stepped to the lectern in uh, the march? Yeah, that's uh, John Lewis, my guy. Yeah, it's a great, great selection. Really good stuff. Thank you. This Jorge. has been fun, Butch. I really appreciate yeah, your time. It's no Leonardo. It's uh, no Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> but uh, leave it to Horty to get. The, I tell you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad. I'm glad you appear on the website because um, you're so good at what you do. You make me compete with you. I get. I get mad when I see you have a guy that I should have had or a topic I should have had. You're one of the best. I'm glad you're here because you keep me. You keep me. Uh, you keep me going. I'm trying to beat you. Well, we're all on the same team, and uh, I, I appreciate 
The fact that you are so competitive that you want to be pushed every day, I think that's a wonderful trait. We share that. Competition is one of the best things about this job. The desire to try to have something first or best every day is one of the things that makes this so much fun. Honestly, Morty, one of the best. I've been in this thing for 40 years, and one of the best things about it was I met you and can call you my friend. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Right there with you. And uh, sometime we'll do a podcast about the night we spent together in a minor league broadcasting booth. I think that's one. I think that would be one. one and, and, and we should get Brad Pitt in there, too. <laughs> in the role of Billy Bean. Yeah. I still All don't right. know what it was. You are off the hot seat. Have a great weekend. I will see you at Paul Brown Stadium next week. Hordy, I, I know you don't have a Bengals call, but I always like to tell you, have a good call with the Bearcats. My thanks to Jeff Hobson, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play, next-level fantasy football game. Download it now from the App Store and Google Play. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find us. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.